0: All right, thank y'all very much for singing for us today. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to take a little breather from our David study, and today being Father's Day and everything, I think it's a good day to talk about love, increasing the dosage. The background of 1 Corinthians 13 is the Corinthian church was really messed up. And the letters to the Corinthian church were to wake them up, to challenge them, to rebuke them, and to help them realize what they were missing. And the number one thing that they were missing was love. They were practicing the Lord's Supper without love. They were coming together and having a big feast, And people were going early, and they were eating all the food, and they were drinking all the wine. So when the rest of the congregation arrived, the people were drunk, and all the food was gone, and most likely all the wine was gone. And so they were not concerned with other people. They were only concerned with themselves. They had problems with sexual sin in the church in Corinth. They had, they had troubles understanding money. They, their priorities were upside down when it came to things like money, uh, uh, service, and ministry. They were only pleasing themselves. And as you go through the Corinthian study and you see all the things that is written to them, you can really discover that they had a whole bunch of issues that needed to be settled, that needed to be straightened out. That's why Jesus spoke, I mean, Paul spoke several times here, talking about the death of Christ and that he does not live to please himself, but he lives to please others. They also had all fouled up the gifts of the Spirit. They had the gifts of, of, of prophecy confused. They had the gift of teaching confused. They had the gift of healing. They had the gift of tongues upside down. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the, the idea of the practice in their worship was so clearly explained what was wrong and what needed to be altered. That's why it's really important not to build your thinking about how the church should operate from the book of Corinthians in looking at what they had wrong, but looking at what Paul was addressing needed to be changed. And they were just messed up. It was a hustling and bustling city. It was a trade center. There were people there with lots of money, and there were people there without hardly anything. The Corinthian uh, city of Corinth was basically full of Epicureans, wealthy people, aristocrats, and then those who were begging for food to eat every day. Very few people would be called the middle class, and they weren't taking care of them. The wealthy were not taking care of the poorest of the poor. And so we have here a lesson of what was missing, and that was love. Love was missing from the Corinthian church. It begins in our study in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31, in the second part of verse 31. And Paul says to them, Now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. Let me show you a more excellent way. I've been talking to you for many pages now. I've been talking to you through these 12 chapters and I've been trying to get you to understand what life really is. Now let me just take all that I've said and let me just summarize it for you. This is the best life of all. Today the philosophies of life are many. Today, there's a, there's a huge movement going on for people to simplify their lives, right? People are, are building tiny houses. They realize that their big house is eating up most, most of their income through the course of the year. And so they're downsizing and they're saying, let's get a tiny house and, and let's live differently. A lot of people are really questioning what most of us grew up to be, the, the American dream. And so they're refocusing that. Many people are living to get as much pleasure out of this life as they can. And, and they're making as much money as they can. And they're still buying that philosophy that says the people with the most toys at the end of their life win. And so they're all about pleasure. They're all about experiences. They're all about making as much money as they can so that they could find what the real life is all about. And, and we know clearly, you just have to look around in our society and realize that's not really the best life. I, I was shocked when I heard that Anthony Bourdain took his own life. Now, as far as being a cook and a storyteller, and, and putting together a real cool show and showing you places and people in a very different way. He was a master at that. I, I thought about him this past week th- thinking about, you know, I re- some of the shows, I've seen several of them. And, and he did have a downside to him. He did have a kind of a, you know, a mysterious element about him. But how in the world could a guy like that get to being 62, 63 years old and go, my life's not worth living? He had risen to the top of his career. He had risen to the top of his, of his world. I, I don't know how much he's worth, but I'm sure he doesn't worry about paying his light bill. I'm sure he doesn't worry about uh, money very much. He traveled the whole world. He could go and do probably whatever he wanted to do. And he just got to the end of it and said, this isn't it. This isn't where it's at. Paul here in this scripture tells us where it's at, where the best life is. And the best life is a life that's full of love. Let's see what he has to say here. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, he says to us, you can have everything in life and still have nothing. That doesn't seem possible, does it? That you could have everything in life and still not have anything. But he says, if I could speak all the languages of earth, if I could speak all the languages, man, I, I, you think about that, how fun that would be if you could speak all the languages on the earth. You could go anywhere you wanted to and you could talk to people. That would be really a thrilling experience. That would be a great time. Not only all the languages of the earth, but all the, the language of all the angels, if they could communicate. But he says, you can speak all the languages, but if you don't love others, he said, it would be like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, we just heard people that have the gift of music, the talent of music, harmonize and play together. But we've got a symbol back there, and I won't, I won't uh, put you through that today. But if I were to take a hammer back there and bang on one of those symbols, it wouldn't sound very good. And that's what Paul says here. He said, man, you can... You can speak eloquently. You can go to China and speak Chinese. You can go into a, a Cambodia and speak rhyme. You can go all those places and you can speak. Wouldn't it be great to be able to speak Italian? I'd love to be able to go in a restaurant, order me some spaghetti and meatballs in, in Italian. And, you know, however they do all those things. But he said, if you don't have love it's absolutely annoying. You don't want to hear it. you cover your ears. He also said in verse two, if I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans, man, if you knew all of God's secret plans, imagine how you could wow people. Imagine how you could direct people. Imagine all the possibilities there would be if you knew all of God's secret plans and if you possessed all knowledge. Now, being so limited in knowledge, I'm impressed with some people's knowledge of different things. When it, in the mechanical world, when I hear guys talking about how this part works and how that part works, I, I just get, I just get blown away by that. I, 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 I literally don't understand how anything really, truly works. And for me, if I can take a wrench or screwdriver and fix anything, I just sit down and feel good about myself. I fix something without breaking it. That's a rare occasion around my house. But Paul says that we had the gift of prophecy, understood all of God's secret plans, and if we possess all knowledge, and he said, even if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, it would be nothing. That's an amazing thing to pe- people today. They, they are trying to get all of God's secret plans. People today are, are seeking knowledge because they believe that knowledge is power. Faith is being exercised. But he said, without love, it's empty. It's nothing. And then he said in verse 3, if I gave everything I had to the poor, man, that would be a great thing, wouldn't it? He said, if I gave everything I had to the poor and even sacrificed my body. He says, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. I mean, giving away all you have to the poor is a wonderful thing. That would be celebrated. Sacrificing your life. That's a wonderful thing to do. To sacrifice your life for the benefit of others. First of all, he says here that you can be benevolent. You can be sacrificing your life. You can be giving it all away. And it's still not amount to anything because you can do that without love. You can do that for attention. You can do that to be noticed. You can do that to, to, to make yourself feel superior to others who aren't willing to give and sacrifice. But we have here in the Scripture, without love, all the languages of the world, all the languages of heaven... He says all of God's secret plans being understood. He says all the knowledge all packed up, even being Christ like in giving, to be benevolent and, and to and to sacrifice without love is nothing. So we have to love. Love is the best life there is, and you can have everything that people strive for in life and still have nothing. Now, it's obvious in verses 4 through 8 here that Paul understood that they needed a definition of what love is. And so he begins. First of all, he says, love is patient. Love is patient. This means patient with people. Love is patient with people. Love is kind. This means that you are useful, you are servant minded, and you are gracious to people. Think about Walmart. Love shows up at Walmart. You can, if you'll just, when you leave church today, go to Walmart, you'll discover very quickly if you use this definition list of whether or not you have love or not. Love is patient with people. They'll have 400 people buying groceries and only two checkout counters and all the self-server broke. How's the love showing up in that situation? Your kindness will be challenged. Love overcomes Walmart. And love is patient and love is kind. He also says that love is not jealous. Love isn't envious. This means a strong desire to have what someone else has or an intense desire to be better than other people. That's what it means to be jealous and envious from this particular word. Think about that. Do you just sit around and desire what other people have? Or is there a real intense desire to be better than other people? That's jealousy. Love is not jealous. Love doesn't brag. It doesn't parade its accomplishments. Think about a parade. What's the parade about? The parade is honoring some achievement, it's it's honoring some day, some special time, some special time that took place in history. And, and when we are bragging, when we are boastful, we are putting our accomplishment on parade. We're saying, everyone lie in the street and look at me, notice me. Understand what I've accomplished. Love doesn't do that. Love lets other people blow the trumpet. Love allows other people to point out if there's any achievements from your life that need to be pointed out, But love doesn't do that. Love doesn't brag. And so very clearly from the Scripture, we have a definition here that if we are bragging, we're not loving. Love doesn't brag. Love is not proud. Love is repentant, not arrogant. Love is repentant, not arrogant. Love is not proud. And so in working that out and applying that, when you're talking with other people, you're not thinking about what you're going to say next that's going to one-up them. You're listening to them. Love listens. And and when there is pride that's built up and it's not repentant and repentance is not there and arrogance is manifesting itself, that person that is that is proudful of themselves, they can't listen to people because they can't wait to what they're going to say next. Now think about conversations you've had, and it seems like your story, your experience is always one-upped. That's not love. That's not love. Now, it may be that you've got a better story than they've got. It may be that you've got a better accomplishment they've got. It may be that your child is better than their child in whatever they're talking about. But love lets it lie. And you're okay with that. Oh, the next one is hellfire and damnation. Love is not Rude. I'm by nature a rude man. It is deep in my bones. It comes out. If I'm not careful, I can be rude very quickly and I can be rude to the bone. And so I know that when I'm in the Spirit, I'm walking by the Spirit and I'm being careful of my Treatment of other people and what they're saying to me, I know when love is in charge, rudeness decreases. Love cares for others in such a way that we are polite, careful with relationships. Rudeness doesn't care for people and it's not polite. Rudeness can't wait to give a little jab. Rudeness can't wait to to tease, to make fun of. But love is polite. And love is careful with other people. Rudeness is overbearing and often crude. But love is servant-minded, is careful with others. And love is okay with not being heard. It's okay with not being heard. It's okay with not thinking what you're thinking, not saying what you're thinking, in other words. Love isn't rude. Love does not demand its own way. It doesn't demand its own way. Jesus said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to be a ransom for many. Paul said that he was not living to please himself, but living to please others so many will be saved. Love doesn't demand its own way. Love is not selfish. Listen to this one. Love is not easily provoked. Love is not irritable. Love doesn't get easily angered when a wrong is done. The idea that love is not irritable, that love is not easily provoked, is this. Love is hard to offend. Now, I believe that one of the real changes that has happened in society since I was a young old boy is people are really thin-skinned today. Thin-skinned. Get their feelings hurt easily. Get offended easily. Love doesn't get offended easily. Love has thick skin. Love endures. Love bears. Love carries. Love is patient with people. Love covers a multitude of sins. Now, it could very well be, maybe it's just the world which we live in, but it could very well be that some of the most offendable people are the Christian people are the Christian people. Easy to offend. Easy to get upset. Easy to be irritated, irritated. Easily provoked. I read a book about two or three weeks ago called Unoffendable. And it's written by a man that is a radio personality. And he does a Christian talk show. And, and some of the stories that he shares in that book are, are quite quite funny. But but also sad to the way things are. And so he plays Christian music for people to listen to, and he has interviews, he talks with people, and and supposedly, I guess, he plays an accordion. And so on one particular show, he played a secular song, a rock song from the 80s, and he played a, a religious song of some kind, a Christian song. I don't know what it was but he played those in the course of his radio program that morning. And a guy called in during their uh, question and answer time and said to him, I've been listening to your show for a long time, and, and I just don't think I can listen to you anymore. You really made me angry today, and I'm so upset with you, and you offended me as a Christian. And, and so he said, what did I do today that has gotten you so, you know, worked up? And he said, well, when you played that secular song from the eighties and you played that Christian song, it was obvious that you had practiced more on the eighties song than you did on the Christian song. And you played that 80s song so much better than the Christian song, I can tell that that secular song means more to you than the religious song. When I, when I heard that story, I thought, oh my, what a what a nutcase. What a nutcase. But but I, I began to think about all the things that Christian people Get bent out of shape over. Easily provoked. Easily irritated. Love is not thin-skinned. Love doesn't keep records of being wronged. Love doesn't keep score. We don't have a last straw. You heard that, hadn't you? That was the last straw. If we're loving, we don't have a last straw. We don't keep records of being wronged. We don't keep a running score of offenses. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't rejoice in injustice. Love rejoices with the truth. Part of our vocabulary, therefore, is not, I am so glad he or she finally got what was coming to them. That's not love. That's rejoicing in someone's problem. That's rejoicing in an injustice. I'm glad they got, you know, they deserve that. They deserve to get blindsided like that. They deserve for that catastrophe. They deserve that. That's not love. And then he goes on and he closes verse 7 by saying, Love never quits. You know you're loving when you don't have any quit in you. Love never quits. Think about the believers, our brothers and sisters in the Lord. How much quit is there in the body of Christ today? There's a lot of quit. Easily people get offended and quit churches. Easily people get offended and quit a Sunday school class. Easily people get offended and quit a ministry. Easily. Not going to tolerate any problems. Not going to put up with them anymore. I'm here to tell you I've had my last straw. That's not love. That's not love. That's selfishness. That's self-centeredness. That's flesh. Love doesn't abandon belief and faith. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. We can say from looking at these last uh, three statements in verse 7 that love never fails. Love never fails. Love always wins from that regard. It may not win in the world's way of looking at it, but it wins in regard to the glory of God. And then in verses 8 through 12, listen to these words. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. So when people argue about tongues and they argue about the spiritual gifting and they argue about gift healing and, and they argue about the gift of faith and the word of knowledge and all these kind of things, wouldn't it be better if there was more arguing about whether or not we're loving? About we're loving like we're supposed to? Where, where's the argument about love? Where's the arguing about love doesn't keep a record of wrongs? Where's the argument that love is not rude? Love is not rude. Love will last forever. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, no question about that. And even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. No question about that. We are down here on this side of eternity, and what we understand about God is so limited. When we reach the other side of the glory and we see heaven, we're going to look around and we're going to go, oh my goodness. Oh, look at this. The, the veil is just going to be t- took away from us. We're going to see things far more clearly than we do now. It's just impossible for us to understand all there is to know about God here. We do look at things uh, uh, in imperfection and we don't quite understand. That's why love needs to be in place instead of arguing our point because we might be wrong. And if we're insistent on being right, we're not loving. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now, we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I, now know, I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. So, what Paul is saying to Corinthians and he's saying to us here today is this love is a sign of maturing, love replaces knowledge, love replaces argument. Love replaces position. Love replaces dissension and division. They were so divided over the things of the Spirit. They were so divided about what the church was to do or wasn't to do. Does that ring a bell? Is that familiar with many of our experiences as a body? Where is the love? That's what we need to ask ourselves. Not whether or not he's right, not whether or not she's right, not whether or not we should be about this project or this project. We should do this ministry this way, which is just a human element we struggle with. But where is the love? You see, when you're in doubt, love. When you don't know what to do, love. We know to love. When you're not quite sure the right Approach and you don't know how to fix this problem or render aid to this particular situation, love. Love. Ask yourself the question what is the loving thing to do here? What is the loving way? Walk down that road. (coughs) He says three things in verse 13 will last forever. Three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love will last forever. Now, since faith, hope, and love will last forever, guess what our three primary themes should be in life? Faith, hope, and love. What are you going to do today? I'm going to spread faith, hope, and love. That's what I'm going to do. What's your goal in life? Faith, hope, and love. How are you going to handle this this conflict that you've got going on at work? Faith, hope, and love. That's how we're going to handle it. That's how we're going to deal with it. I'm going to move forward in faith. I'm going to take another step with hope. And I'm going to love the each step of the way. And then he says, and oh, by the way, out of faith, hope, and love, the greatest is love, is love. In chapter 14, verse 1, the New Living Translation says, let love be your highest goal. In the English Standard Version, it says, pursue love. You might be a goal setter. You might each week or, or maybe on Sunday evening, you may sit down with a piece of paper on your computer and, and you list the goals for that week. You, you may live your life trying to reach the goals that you set for yourself. If you're a goal setter and you're living according to those goals and if love is not number one on your list, then you need a new list. Love should be your primary goal. Well, how how does that work? Well, as a dad, today's Dad's Day, right? Father's Day. My goal is to teach my kid algebra. My goal is to teach my kid, you know, how to play shortstop. My goal is to teach my kid, you know, how to deal with this, that, and the other. Whatever it is, right? You have goals as a dad. You have goals as a husband. You have goals The number one goal for every dad should be, I'm going to love. I'm going to love. That's my number one goal. number one goal for a worker is, I'm going to love. Now, I'm going to go to work. I may deal with this project. I may fix this situation. I may have to, to build this thing or whatever it is you do at your work. Number one should be love. Not building a thing or solving the problem or fixing the situation or or you know selling the product. Number one is everyone I meet with I'm gonna love. I'm gonna love. The highest goal, the pursuit of our life is love. Some questions. Is love missing in your life? Are you growing in love? Do you love more today than you did yesterday? Are you growing in love? Can you say that you love more now than you did this time last year? Are you moving forward in love? Pursue love. Let love be your highest goal. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to really look carefully at our lives. And answer these questions if we are fulfilling your guidelines for love. In Jesus' name, amen. Ushers, come forward.